Welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bob Thune. I'm here with Pastor Chris Hemelman of First City Church. We are lacking Pastor Dusty White, who isn't with us today. On Wednesdays, we sit down and talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today, we're talking about the Pope and same-sex blessings. We'll get to that topic in a minute, but first, shout out to some... Hey, the snack game for the Wednesday Conversation has just gone to a new level. Let me explain what just happened. Uh, Chris usually rolls in right before we start recording, and there's a door that he comes through downstairs that, that is near a little kitchen that's in our building. And when Chris walked in the door, there was a listener from our podcast, Phil, standing in the kitchen making the snack literally as we were about ready to eat it and then hand delivering it to the podcast studio. When I walked in the door, the smell of cinnamon goodness just like nailed me. It was like a warm hug. It was the first thing you said. It was like, something smells amazing. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. It turns out it was plantains. And what is this, Cocoa Whip? Cocoa Whip. Cocoa Whip is like a coconut-based whipped cream slash ice cream that's not ice cream. It was very delicious. Like I... I'm looking at my bowl that has like stuff at the bottom and I'm really tempted to lick the bowl right in front of you, (laughs) but that would be a little weird, but I'm, so I'm not going to do it, but I'm very tempted to do it. All right. So thanks Phil for providing uh, snacks for this episode. Happy 2024 friends. Um, I know we've been in the new year for about 10 days now, but uh, we're still sort of catching up to some of the news items that happened over the course of sort of the Christmas new year break that we didn't get a chance to talk about on the podcast since we took the last couple weeks of December off. And one of those things is on December 18th, uh, the Pope issued a new statement on blessings for same-sex relationships. And that, of course, unleashed a firestorm of both celebration and critique and it was really interesting that it happened on December 18th and then we sort of rolled into Christmas and this has sort of set the Catholic world on fire. And um, so I'm going to read a few excerpts for listeners just to sort of catch you up on the sort of storyline. And then we'll, um, we'll sort of analyze it from there. But I, I just, um, and by the way, if you're wondering like, well, hey man, we're Protestants. Like, you know, why should we care about this? The first article I'm going to read for you seeks to answer that question. So again, the storyline is uh, December 18th, Rome's Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, or the DDF for short. <laughs> it's like some I'd never heard of that ultra before. secret Catholic uh, group released a, um, a text called Fiducia Supplicans, which translated means on the pastoral meaning of blessings. And the functional um, case that it made was that, well, I'll read these authors and sort of let them describe it, but the functional case that the uh, the document makes is that there are situations in which same-sex relationships can receive blessings in the Catholic Church. And the doublespeak here is pretty profound. And as you're going to see, no one who reads this document can really make any sense of it. But of course, the sort of progressive wing of the Catholic Church is celebrating it as sort of a new moment and a new step for the church. Um, so I'm going to read briefly. So I first want to read from Carl Truman. All three of these pieces are from first things, um, from three different writers, one a Protestant, two who are Catholics. 
the Protestant writer is Carl Truman. And um, he obviously, <laughs> he realizes, hey, um, this could be a moment for Protestants to sort of like do a victory lap. So he writes in his article, it would be easy in these circumstances to indulge in a certain Protestant triumphalism. As many Catholics now seem to face a conflict of conscience akin to that which Luther faced. Yet, he goes on to write, Catholicism has for many years given us, Protestants, an umbrella under which we can shelter from the worst excesses of the broader culture, whether it is the fight against abortion, intrusive healthcare mandates, or the imposition of political ideology through regulations governing adoption. The Catholic Church has led and has had the financial power and cultural presence to do so in a way unavailable to Protestants. And so he notes that, hey, part of the good of a Protestant is that the Catholic Church has kind of provided an umbrella for us. In other words, they're, they're, we make common cause on a lot of issues from abortion to adoption regulations and so forth. And so for Protestants, anytime the Catholic Church suffers uh, societal or cultural attenuation, that's bad news for us as well. Later on in the article, he writes, this decision will also affect Protestants, whether we like it or not. The officer class of our culture cares little for debates about transubstantiation and papal authority. It makes no real distinction between Catholics and Protestants in its eyes. We are all Christians, and thus the shenanigans of the Pope will put pressure on us all. The argument will be, if Rome can change, why can we all not change? So I think Truman there seems to name two important things. One is that there is a broad-scale affinity between Protestants and Catholics on issues of common cause. And secondly, that we're just all going to get lumped in together as Christians, and so people are going to be like, hey, if the Pope you know, got more progressive, how come Chris Hellman can't be more like the Pope? That's the argument you're going to hear. The next piece I want to read is called The Pope and the Black Hole from Dan Hitchens, who is an editor at First Things. I just want, He's just a, a normal, ordinary Catholic layperson. And I want to read to you sort of his experience reading this document, because part of the challenge of this document is that it is um, it obfuscates things that should be clear and leads to a greater confusion within the Catholic Church rather than greater clarity. Writing on December 19th, the day after Fiducia Supplicans was released, he writes, I have spent what feels like years parsing these much-debated Vatican documents, checking the exact translation of Italian words, Badgering learned canonists and theologians for comments, comparing one sentence with another. Usually one can cast light upon a document by asking what the church has said before. In this case, the document itself cites the last Vatican statement on the subject issued in 2021. That text decreed, with the signed approval of Pope Francis, that it is not licit to impart a blessing on relationships or partnerships that involve sexual activity outside of marriage, as is the case of the unions between persons of the same sex. But a few thousand words after invoking that previous document, this new one suddenly announces that within the horizon outlined here appears the possibility of blessings for couples in irregular situations and for couples of the same sex. Naturally, you search the text for where it explains why the previous document was wrong, you find nothing. Hitchens goes on to write, given that there are now two contradictory papal teachings, the 2021 document and the 2023 one, it is clearly logically impossible to deny that popes 
when not speaking ex cathedra can sometimes err. And of course, this was already common knowledge from the embarrassing cases of Popes John XXII and Liberius, and most spectacularly, Pope Honorius. And then he goes on to conclude his article by saying, but we should still trust the Pope. I mean, Popes can err, but we should still trust the papacy. And, you know, I would just say you should, you should become more Protestant, man. He's a good Catholic. Go, go, ahead and, go ahead and depart from this mess. The final piece I want to read is from the Catholic uh, Archbishop Emeritus of Philadelphia. I want to say you pronounce his name Chapit, but I'm not sure. Charles Chapit. Um, he is a well-known, I've read his, I've seen his name a lot and read stuff from him before. I just don't know how to pronounce his last name correctly. Um, but he is a, a, a well-known conservative archbishop in the American Roman Catholic Church. And he writes a piece critical of fiducia supplicants. And I want to read a couple of his critiques. I'm going to read, first of all, the opening paragraph of his article. One of the standards the church uses to measure the quality of her leaders is a simple line from Scripture. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. 1 Corinthians 14.33 So it was for Paul. So it is now. So it is for local pastors and bishops, including the Bishop of Rome. Confusion among the faithful can often be a matter of innocent individuals who hear but fail to understand the word. Confused teaching, however, is another matter. It's never excusable. The transmission of Christian truth requires prudence and patience because humans are not machines, but it also demands clarity and consistency. Deliberate or persistent ambiguity, anything that fuels misunderstanding or seems to leave an opening for objectively sinful behavior, is not of God, and it inevitably results in damage to individual souls and to our common church life. I mentioned this for a reason, and then he goes on to describe the release of fiducia supplicans and um, the way that it was quickly interpreted as a shift in the church's practice, and the LGBTQ community celebrated it as like a new openness to um, same-sex partnerships. The archbishop gives three, <laughs> three or four aspects of sort of critique and clarity here. He says, first, a key role of the Pope is to unify the church, not divide her, especially on matters of faith and morals. Second, an essential task of a loving pastor is to correct as well as accompany. Blessings should encourage, but also, when necessary, challenge. Third, relationships that the church has always seen as sinful are now often described as irregular. This neuters the reality of morally defective behavior and leads to confusion about what we can and can't call sin. Finally, while the document does not in fact change church teaching on marriage, it does seem to change church teaching on the sinfulness of same-sex activity. Marriage isn't the point of fiducia supplicans. Its point is the moral nature of same-sex unions, and this is a crucial distinction. And so he goes on to talk about how the how PBS and other uh, outlets, other news outlets, have you know reported this as a, a change in the teaching of the Catholic Church. And uh, the Archbishop here goes on to conclude his article this way: Over the past decade, ambiguity on certain matters of Catholic doctrine and practice has become a pattern for the current pontificate. The Pope's criticism of American Catholics has all too often been unjust and uninformed. Much of the German church is effectively in schism. And he goes on to say, 
The most urgent challenge that Christians face in today's world is anthropological. Who and what a human being is, whether we have some higher purpose that warrants our special dignity as a species, whether we're anything more than unusually smart animals who can invent and reinvent ourselves. So Archbishop Chaput is saying that the most important question in our day and age is anthropological. And rather than answering that question or speaking to that question, the Pope seems to be sort of like doing all these other things that that actually don't gain us any clarity in that category and that create more ambiguity in other categories. And so he is saying, what, what do you hear him saying there? And, and if you have um, Catholic friends or are sort of up to speed on some of the um, fissures within the Catholic Church, you, you won't be surprised that there are certain people who really love Pope Francis and there are certain people who really don't love Pope Francis and that he has been seen by everyone in the, in the Catholic community as a very different figure from his predecessor, from Pope Benedict, um, Joseph Ratzinger. He, Benedict was a very conservative figure and a very sort of doctrinal figure, and Francis is very different from that. And so many of the more conservative Catholics, especially in America, have many, many critiques to offer of Francis. And this new statement issued by the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith uh, certainly doesn't uh, give us any more reasons to think that Francis is heading in sort of an orthodox and conservative direction. So why are we talking about this subject? Well, partially because, as um, Carl Truman points out, anything that affects the sort of integrity of the Catholic Church has effects for Protestants as well. And so those of us who are convictionally Protestant, though this might not be our church and our communion, what goes on there is going to affect our churches and Christianity in America. And secondly, because part of this podcast is just helping us reflect more broadly on how to be thoughtful Christians in a post-Christian world or a post-Christendom world. And certainly this decision by the Pope sort of continues to move the Overton window of what, do, what does the church think or what should Christians think or what should people think about the morality of things like same-sex relationships. And so the, there's been some confusing things. Essentially, it seems like what the Pope has said is you can bless the two human beings in a relationship without blessing the relationship. It's like he's trying to sort of thread the needle in that way that sort of says, we're not blessing your relationship. We're just blessing you as a human and you as a human who happen to be in an illicit relationship. And that, again, starts to get real confusing. Yeah. Two two things come to mind here. One, to your point, this is a great example of whether, whether a good or bad example, largely bad here, of how to lead in our current culture and current times. And you see the Pope leading in a particular direction, and you see others that are calling out the problematic nature of how he is leading. And so, I, you know, to your, your point of what, as we as Protestants, how can we, you know, what, what, what is this, how does this matter to us? This is, I mean, just an example of what kind of leadership is called for. And what each of these articles point out that the problem here, the essential problem here with this statement is its lack of clarity. Yeah, it's moving in a particular direction, but it's doing that by not being clear. Like, like you pointed out, throwing this weird, hey, I'm going to bless you, but I'm not going to bless the relationship. That kind of like nuance, like I'm all about nuance. I love nuance, <laughs> but there is a kind of nuance that purposefully muddies waters and that is what is happening here. And, and you see this happening more and more in our day and age, that kind of leadership that doesn't bring clarity, but muddies the waters. So even, even as Protestants, cause there's a lot of the nuances of Catholic 
teaching and how, you know, what, what has authority in this way and different things. But if we just sit back and look at this as a lesson in leadership, especially for, for church leaders, I think there's a lot for us to learn here. And the second thing is, is no matter how you parse this, no matter how, you, you know, again, getting into all the, the nuances of, of how Catholic teaching is giving and it's not ex cathedra and, and various things. The Pope has moved, like you said, has moved the Overton window. Like that has to be acknowledged. He has changed. Like you don't, th- th- this would be a completely superfluous statement if he wasn't trying to change something. Because of course I can bless someone. I don't bless what you do when I'm going to bless you. Why would they need a new statement for that? That, that already they could have built off of what they already had to do that. So, so, so there's something about this statement that has shifted things. And so while, again, I'm not um, an expert in how all these, these different pieces and teachings kind of interact with each other, it seems pretty clear that this is different. Something has changed. This is a moment where, you know, to Carl Truman's point, it's, you know, we don't want to engage in Protestant point scoring, yeah. you know, or like yeah. victory laps. However, this, what, what's happening right now is on a very, very small scale, the kinds of things that were taking place during the era of the Reformation, right? Where, where the church was moving in directions and the Pope was doing things and saying things that made the average Christian person raise their hand and say, I don't think that's in the Bible. Like, I have a problem with that. And so you see here the impetus behind the Reformation. And I, th- I, I think one of the things this hopefully does is give good Bible-loving Roman Catholics a little more charity toward their Protestant brothers and sisters who would just say, hey, we love Jesus, we love the Bible, we, we're not buying in the Pope and we're not buying into sort mm-hmm. of the, the, the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church. And in this moment, I think there's one, this, this gives a, another example of why those kinds of decisions get made and why, again, sort of like convictionally and biblically and historically, I remain a convinced Protestant. Yeah. Um, because this is the same kind of thing that was going on in the Reformation, whereas the Pope departs from orthodoxy or departs from um, scriptural teaching on any issue. Now the question is, okay, so does the whole church go in that direction? Does a new Pope come in and shift the, you know, shift the window back in a new direction? And those are the debates that are always taking place within the Roman Catholic communion. Yeah. And things like this happen incrementally. Like it wasn't like the Pope was going to come out and, and try to do this hard, complete change in church dogma. Like that, there's no way that was going to happen so typically when something like this happens, people are like, well, it's not, the, the sky isn't falling, these kinds of things, you know, it's not, it's not the worst, the end of the world kind of thing, but it never starts that way. And I think that's the concern that Catholics are going to have is this is the beginning of an incremental shift. And if it keeps going down this trajectory, 10 years or 5, 10, 15, 20, who knows, you're going to be in a much different place where the ground is going to be tilled for significant changes to actual church dogma. Now someone can say, there's no way that's going to happen. Okay. I mean, maybe, and, and I hope not, but this is for that to happen. This kind of thing has to happen. And so the, something has started here. And so it'd be interesting to see in the coming years, how the Catholic church responds to this little shift. Uh, I want to go back to Carl Truman's observation of how this affects Uh, Protestants specifically. I find Truman generally to be a pretty fair-minded critic. I mean, you know, he's, he's critical all the way around. He's critical of Protestants, he's critical of Catholics. And generally, you know, Truman can be a little cranky sometimes, but he's generally pretty precise in what he sees. Mm -hmm. Here's one of the things he points out in his articles. He says, for Protestants, this is a reminder that the papacy 
is not a cure-all for the alleged problems surrounding Protestant notions of scriptural sufficiency and clarity. Think about what he's saying there. So one of the moves you see like um, disaffected evangelicals making is they always go in one of two directions, either deconstruction, I'm leaving the faith, or I'm going to go become Catholic or Eastern Orthodox because they're looking for sort of like a stronger, more centralized kind of ecclesiology with a, with a sort of like, you know, doctrinal sort of center to it that has a, a, a living, breathing sort of magisterium. And uh, so Truman points out like, hey, this is a reminder that, you know, going and joining the Catholic Church is not a solution for the problems surrounding Protestant notions of scriptural sufficiency and clarity. He goes on to write, St. Paul promoted both the importance of scripture and a church marked by ordained office for their preservation and transmission of the faith. Neither on its own can do the task by itself. And if Protestantism is vulnerable to not taking the church seriously enough, then a strong and hierarchical ecclesiology is vulnerable to generating its own forms of chaos. What Truman is saying there, I think, is really important for convictional Protestants to hear. Because he's saying there's two sides of the horse you can fall off on. You can fall off on the side that just says, like, all we need is the Bible. Who needs any kind of ecclesiology? That's the sort of fundamentalist side of things. You can also fall off on the Catholic side of things that says, like, well, since we have this church hierarchy, you know, that will that's what will preserve the integrity and purity of doctrine. And Truman says what St. Paul promoted was always the importance of Scripture and of a church marked by ordained officers, elders and deacons, and those who preserve and teach the faith. And so that's why sort of historic Protestantism has always held those things together, has said, yes, sola scriptura, that's the, the, the scripture alone is our sort of authority in matters of faith and practice, and we need the tradition of the church, we need the institution of the church, we need the preservation of the church and its teaching function in order to help us understand the scriptures. And, and rightly understood, I think, magisterial Protestantism has always done a good job holding those two things together. And um, Truman is reminding us that if we lose either one of those things, if we lose the importance of scripture or we lose the importance of like an ordained church leadership kind of um, ecclesiology, that then we move away from what the scripture gives us. And to add what you just said, Bob, with something that Charles Chappett added, emphasized here is the importance of that leadership bringing theological clarity. Uh, I One of the things I loved about this article is remove sort of the, the situation he's talking about. I think he highlights a number of really important things about pastoral ministry and leadership, that of clarity, mm-hmm. theological clarity, you have to lead. But then also the lines where he, uh, a loving pastor is to correct as well as a company, you have to be both prophet and pastor. And so this is where, again, I think this example, this situation is a, is a learning opportunity for Protestants, especially pastors. How are you leading at this time? Are you bringing theological clarity? Are you leaning in as elders, a plurality of elders, creating a theological clarity for your church and leading out of that clarity? Are you loving and accompanying? Are you challenging and pastoring? So there's great opportunity here for us as leaders to look at what's going on and not point fingers and go, oh, look at those crazy Catholics, but to say, hey, something's happening here and the Catholic Church is really having to wrestle through this situation and how they're going to lead through it. How are we doing that? Because this is a real issue. This is the culture we're in. It's not going away. So I would 
hope that this would spur us as Protestants, spur us as those who believe in a plurality of eldership. If you don't, you should. Uh, but believe, but but as elders leading well in this time and and being good pastors in this time. I want to come back to this. This reminds me of something I've said in the past that I think it's a good opportunity to reiterate, which is that the gospel frees us to be both pastorally connected and morally clear. Mm-hmm. And in this particular instance, in this particular situation, right, you have people in your life who are same-sex attracted. The gospel of Jesus invites them to come to Christ in repentance and faith. Those people need pastoral sensitivity and grace and a community of friends who want to walk, walk alongside them. Also, we need to have moral clarity about what is and isn't biblical. And it's possible to hold those things together. And what the world wants us to do is to tear them apart, to say either we have, either we say same-sex relationships are sinful, in which case now we're bigots and haters, or we say we love these people as human beings, in which case we have to embrace the nature of their relationship. And I like what Chaput says in his piece where he says, relationships the church has always seen as sinful are now often described as irregular. Mm. And what he's saying is, hey, language matters. Yeah. That calling something sinful is really important to biblical clarity and to sort of like lose the language of sin and repentance and to start calling things irregular. It, sacrifices moral clarity and it it seems to do so in the sense in in the direction of being more pastorally helpful but it isn't helpful because it it loses the sense of sort of like moral clarity that the bible has that says you're a human being made in the image of god and you need to know what it means to sort of walk in obedience to jesus in all areas of your life and the bible never sort of like separates that and says since you're human you, you know you need less moral clarity. <laughs> it yeah, actually says yeah, yeah, moral yeah. clarity yeah. and your humanity are meant to, to fit together. Yeah. And, and this whole theology of blessing, not to go too far down this tangent, but I mean, there is a rich theological depth to this concept of blessing. But if you were to sort of simplify it, it's this idea of having God's favor on you. And God's favor doesn't rest on those who walk in unrepentant sin. It, it comes to us in Christ. And what is that? It's a forgiveness of sin. It's a being set free from sin. It's being renewed in the image of Christ. And so to, to sort of play this dance of, I bless you, but not your sin in relationship. Like, yeah, we, we understand that we're, we're sinners and we're in process at times, but we never sort of go, Oh, I'm, I'm blessed while I'm, you know, in this sin and God is, you know, okay with that. And I have God's blessing. So it's, it's okay. No, we repent of sin because of Christ and because God's blessing comes to us through Christ, which calls us to repent. So even this idea of the, the way he's playing with the word blessing here, I think actually undermines the power of the gospel. And as Christians, we want to bless people with the gospel, but we also are saying, hey, the blessing of the gospel comes to set you free from sin, mm. not, to, not to take it lightly. So clarifying what we mean by blessing here and how the gospel blesses us, is, I think, is important for us to articulate. Our hope then will be that uh, that future Catholic doctrine will refine and correct this move. But as Chris said a few minutes ago, I think the danger is under this papacy, that's certainly not going to happen. And what most conservative voices in the Catholic community in America have said since Pope Francis took office was, this is not going to be good for sort of the preservation of, of Orthodox doctrine. 
So I think everybody knew that Francis sort of wanted to move the church in more progressive directions. And as you said, Chris, he's not going to do it all at once. He's going to do it incrementally. And this is obviously seen by all of these commentators as an example of that. And so as we pray for our uh, Catholic friends, um, I think we can pray that this would be an opportunity to to revisit the sense of clarity of the gospel, to revisit the sense of what does it mean to be part of a communion that, that has the shape that this does. And uh, again, that even some of the same questions the Reformation raised might get raised once again. That would be, I think, a good thing. Uh, what we want is um, people coming to, um, to personal faith in Christ and into communion with others who have personal faith in Christ. Yeah. And uh, obviously, as convictional Protestants, we have a vision of what that should look like uh, when, it turn, when it takes shape organizationally. Um, but uh, we want to see um, orthodox, biblical, godly doctrine um, reign, even in a church that we believe has sort of departed from that in important ways throughout history. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. Is I am con- yeah, convictionally Protestant, do not hold to uh, significant teachings of the Catholic Church, but I want the Catholic Church to uphold biblical views of gender, of sexuality. I want to hold to the traditions that they have held to uh, for, for thousands of years. So I, I do think as, as Protestants, we want to champion biblical truth and we want to encourage our Catholic friends to do that too. So I hearty amen to that, Bob. I, I don't want this to be occasion for us to, um, point fingers in any way, but, but to support and to encourage, uh, faithfulness. Well, hope this podcast has helped you understand a little bit of what went on over the last 30 days in the Roman Catholic Church so that as you hear people comment about it and talk about it and write about it, um, you have a little sense of the background of it. And um, again, uh, as we always say, our goal on this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. We work and minister and live in a highly Roman Catholic town. And so these things matter for our conversation with our neighbors and people at the gym and people on our sports team. I was just talking to a friend today who said, yeah, my son's uh, baseball coach is a Catholic and, you know, had some conversations with him about this shift. And so uh, for that reason, these kinds of things do matter as we seek to live on mission in the world around us. And so if you're a Christian or church leader listening from another context, thanks for listening in. And as always, our prayer is that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. Um, We always love to hear from listeners. So, hey, it's a new year. If you have a a thought, a question, a future podcast topic, something you want us to talk about, feel free to send us an email, podcast at cdomaha.com, and we'd love to hear your ideas and tackle them. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.